Good morning. Let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for your love for us, that you are a good father who gives good gifts to your children. And uh, of those gifts, you have given us your son. And, uh, and so we glory in his name. And you have also given us your uh, scripture. You've given us your spirit. And then you've also given us uh, the church. And, uh, and so that's represented in this room. But that's also represented in, uh, in hundreds of other countries around the world, and it is uh, represented throughout history. And so we're grateful for an opportunity for us to continue to study church history and to be edified and encouraged as we, uh, as we uh, look to and uh, in a lot of ways emulate, but in also other ways um, want to avoid some of the mistakes of those who have gone before us. And, uh, and so we love you. Pray that you would bless us this morning as we, uh, we consider these topics. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thanks for coming to Theological Equipping class. Uh, we have now kind of surveyed uh, church history. We, we've, we've looked at the highs and the lows of the early church through the Middle Ages, and we find ourselves right now in the middle of a time called the Reformation. And so two weeks ago, we talked about Luther. He kind of is the match that starts the, uh, the Reformation. And, uh, and then this week, we want to uh, talk about uh, kind of the the other probably most significant reformer, and that is uh, John Calvin. So we've talked about Luther, we've talked about the Reformation itself. Now we're going to look at uh, John Calvin. On the Mount Rushmore of church theologians, you have Augustine, uh, who we've talked about uh, a couple of months ago, and then you have Luther, and then you have Calvin. I don't really know who the fourth is, probably Joel Osteen or something like that. But uh, you have Calvin, and, uh, and he's the Ron Burgundy of the Reformation. He's kind of a big deal. Uh, you might even argue in a lot of ways he is as significant as, uh, as Luther. And so Luther certainly is more significant in regards to starting the Reformation, but we'll see that a lot of what Calvin is able to do is to bridge some divides, whereas uh, Luther's personality kind of uh, tends to drive people away, uh, Calvin tends to be a little bit more uh, welcoming. So Luther's the guy that you'd want to go and have a beer with at a pub, get into a drunken brawl with him, but uh, Calvin is a little bit of a better uh, systematic theologian sort of thing. And so uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, about him. So remember, if you will, that the Reformation, when we talk about the Reformation, it's not just one monolithic movement, right? In, in, in fact, you might say that there are multiple reformations that are happening in this time period. You might think of them as these multiple streams and they're all flowing generally in the same direction and they have a, a, a handful of commonalities, these similarities. And last week we talked about a number of those theological similarities, uh, such as the five solas. Uh, and so we talked about the fact uh, that his, uh, church, later uh, church history uh, looked back upon the Reformation, saw all of these diverse streams, and said what's similar about them, and came up with these five solas. Sola Scriptura, Sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, uh, Christ alone, and then to the glory of God alone. And so those are all of the different uh, reformations share that same sort of, uh, those same themes. And so before we really get to Calvin, I just want to kind of give an overview of how these various streams uh, of reform kind of branch out. So you start in 1517. October 31st, that's when Luther posts the 95 Theses in Wittenberg, Ger uh, Germany. Uh, there were pre-reform movements before that, but this event is generally seen as the formal start of the Reformation. So that's 1517, October 31st in Wittenberg, Germany. Meanwhile, about 500 miles away in Zurich, Switzerland, 
Uh, Ulrich Zwingli is arriving at remarkably similar ideas uh, in regards to justification and scripture and so forth. And so given these similarities of what's happening in, uh, in Germany and what's happening in Switzerland, there's an attempt to join forces, to join those two streams into one, like in the Ghostbusters, and uh, in 1529, and so, so they, uh, they meet at this thing called the, Mar- uh, the, colloquy, the Marburg Colloquy and, uh, in 1529. Uh, and so Luther and, uh, and Zwingli and some of their representatives are there and they discuss 15 points of, uh, uh, of distinctly uh, Protestant theology. They actually agree on 14 out of the 15, but they can't agree on the final one. They can't agree on communion. So you effectively have two distinct rivers. You have the German Reformation, which will then lead to Lutheranism. And then you have the Swiss Reformation, which will be called the, quote, Reformed tradition. And so all of these are in the Reformation, but the Reformed, when you hear that phrase, Reformed, that word, Reformed tradition, refers to kind of what's going on, not with Lutheranism, but rather with the Swiss Reformation, which will then move out to other uh, reform movements. So then in 1533, this sort of Reformation ideal hits England. That then leads to Anglicanism, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. Uh, but Calvin is going to be situated right in the Reformed tradition, that is in the Swiss Reformation. You have a map there, you can see kind of some of those various uh, movements as, uh, as they're happening there in the mid uh, 16th century. So who was John Calvin? Well, he was born July 10th, 1509 in Noyon, France, which means that he's about seven years old when the Reformation begins, when uh, Luther nails the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg, uh, Luther is about seven. And the Reformation already has about two decades of traction by the time he's converted. So in a sense, you might even think of Calvin as kind of almost a second generation uh, reformer. And as a child, he was a really good student. He excelled in Latin and philosophy. He was training actually to be a Catholic priest. So he says that at that period of time, he was stubbornly tied to the superstitions of the papacy. His dad at the time even managed to get him a minor church post uh, as he's studying so that he could have some income to help defray the cost of his uh, education. But then his dad, who was kind of influential within the Roman Catholic Church because of his place in society, he has kind of a, a bit of a social conflict with the church. And so he tells Calvin, you know what? Don't waste your life after all trying to become a priest. Instead, become a lawyer. So Calvin begins to study the law but his heart really wasn't in it. He really loved things like philosophy and theology and, uh, and so forth. But at some point, as, he is, uh, as he's studying, as he's thinking, he's exposed to some of the emerging ideas of Protestantism, and he was converted uh, in that uh, season. What's fascinating is that when that exactly happens to him, when that change takes place, isn't really known. Unlike Luther, Calvin isn't much of an autobiographer. Luther tells us a whole lot about what he's feeling, what he's thinking, what he's experienced. That's not the way that Calvin uh, operates. And so we don't have much uh, about that conversion sort of experience. But at the very latest, uh, at the very latest, by 1535, when he's 26, he's now identified as a Protestant. The problem is that Protestantism wasn't secure in France. Uh, In France, the the king, uh, Francis I, uh, he gave Protestants an ultimatum at this time period. He said, you can either recant, come back into the Catholic fold, uh, or you can live in exile, or you can face persecution. So Calvin goes into exile in a place called Basel in Switzerland, 
And Calvin's desire at this point is not to be a pastor. He didn't want to be a pastor at all. He wanted to be a writer. He wanted to be a theologian. He wanted to be a scholar, all right? He didn't want to lead the Reformation. He wanted solitude and, uh, and books, all right? And I say amen to that. Anyone who knows me probably can understand why I really like uh, Calvin. You probably can understand from Luther's personality why Zach loves him. I love Calvin, though. So <laughs> Calvin wanted to be a scholar. In particular, he sensed that there is this need now, as the, uh, as the Reformation is about two decades old, he, he sees, senses this need for a thoroughly Protestant uh, biblical theology. Uh, until then, most of the writings of various reformers, uh, most of the Protestant uh, writings were reactionary. They were polemical. All right? There was a lot written about justification by faith. There was a lot written uh, about the role of scripture versus tradition because those were kind of the debates of the day as uh, Protestantism is debating with uh, uh, Catholic theology. Uh, but he realizes that uh, they need a more comprehensive theological work from a Protestant perspective that kind of covered everything. Things like uh, not just justification by faith and scripture and uh, these Protestant uh, distinctives, but something that is comprehensive that covers Trinitarianism and Christology and eschatology and so forth. And so Calvin realized there was a need for something that's a bit more constructive and comprehensive. So he set out to create that in what is called the Institutes or the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Although the original title, I think you have it in your note, is the, uh, the Institute of the Christian Religion containing almost the whole sum of piety and whatever is, it is necessary to know in the doctrine of salvation. A work very, very well worth reading by all persons zealous for piety and lately published. A preface to the most Christian king of France in which this book is presented to him as a confession of faith. Author John Calvin of Noyon, written in Basel, MD XXXVI, 1536. Now, for the record, that title won't even fit in a tweet, right? My favorite part of the title is a work very well worth reading. If I have one critique of Zach's book, it's that it doesn't say whether or not it's worth reading on the title. It should say it right there. Calvin puts it on the cover. Why was it called the Institutes? Well, the word uh, institute, uh, the Latin word institutio uh, means instruction or teaching, and that had appeared in various Latin works and the works of other reformers. So it was just a common term in the time. So he writes the first version in 1536, and he has two goals. Those two goals are clarity and brevity. In general, he accomplishes the, for, the former. You can tell, by, even by his title, he doesn't really accomplish the second, that is brevity. Uh, and uh, so that's a bit subjective as to whether or not he would actually succeeded in being brief. But uh, the first uh, version was about 516 pages. The reason it was 516 pages is because Calvin wanted to make it intentionally small so that it could fit into the pockets of the day for secret circulation in uh, areas like France where Protestantism was banned. Uh, so I love that idea that 516 pages is considered small. It's a bit of a rebuke on, uh, on culture today. The next time any of you complain about the length of a blog or a sermon or something, just remember, it says more about you than it does us. But Calvin, he'd end up revising the book a handful of times. In fact, uh, he rev revised it the rest of his life, but he never really cuts anything out. He would just kind of clarify and then he would supplement, he would add to it. And by the last revision in 1560, the original six chapters had grown to 80. And, uh, and so my English copy that I actually have is over 1,500 pages, so three times as long as the original. But the length 
isn't really a, a hindrance because the Institutes would go on to become one of the most important, one of the most popular books uh, in the history of the world. In fact, the, the English translation of the Institutes was for a while the best-selling English book outside of the Bible. Right now it's probably Harry Potter or something like that. But that was the original uh, sort of influence of the book. If you've never taken the time to read it, I highly encourage you to do so. You spend 15 minutes a day uh, on it and uh, you should be able to finish it in uh, about half a year uh, or so. But the theme of the book is found in these opening words. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And so that's what he sets out to do, is give us a knowledge about God and then a knowledge of ourselves. That's the Institutes. Calvin was 27 when he wrote it. He would continue working on it until his death with the last revision being made a few years before his death in 1564. So he writes the Institutes while he's in Basel, Switzerland. And, uh, and then after doing that, Calvin is kind of looking for a place to settle down. And he decides on Strasbourg, Germany, which is a place of relative social peace and quiet that will, in his mind, afford him the opportunity to read and write. So he heads out towards Strasbourg, but the direct route is, uh, is actually draw, uh, blocked by some traffic at the time in the form of a battle that's broken out between France and Spain. So he's to, he has to make a detour. And that detour uh, takes him through the city of Geneva. So uh, Calvin plans to just spend one night in uh, Geneva. He'll actually end up spending most of the rest of his life there, but uh, we'll uh, get to that. So the Institutes, he's written the Institutes. He's now traveling towards Strasbourg. He gets to Geneva, but the Institutes meanwhile have uh, kind of created a bit of a hum in Protestant areas. So the name John Calvin is kind of known. He's a somebody. So he didn't tell anybody that he was in Geneva because he doesn't want to get stopped. He wants to get to Strasbourg where he can become a scholar. So he takes an assumed name while he's there in Geneva. Like when a celebrity will give a fake name at a hotel, that's what Calvin did. The name that he gives is Martianus Lucianus uh, or Lucianius. Uh, but someone finds out and they actually tell one of the leading reformers in the city whose name is Will Farrell. Actually, it's William Farrell. I like the idea of being Will Farrell. And Pharrell instantly recognizes this opportunity that he has, all right? So what's happening in Geneva at the time? Well, the original leader of the Swiss Reformation was named what? Anybody remember? Zwingli. Zwingli, that's right, Ulrich Zwingli. And then in 1531, Catholic armies had attacked Zurich, and they had killed Zwingli, and they had reimposed Catholic rule. By the way, whenever Luther uh, was told that Zwingli had died, did he cry? Did he lament? No, he just simply said, those who live by the sword die by the sword. So again, Luther was a bit caustic. So uh, 1531, Zurich uh, is attacked, uh, Catholic armies kill Zwingli. They reimpose Catholic rule. So the Reformation is now in the hands of a guy named Heinrich Bullinger, but it lacked cohesion and unity. So a few years later, uh, the city of Bern in Switzerland, they had annexed Geneva, and it thus suddenly overnight became Protestant. All right, but its opposition to Roman Catholicism wasn't so much theological as it was political. So the reformers in Bern wanted to disciple the people in Geneva in Reformation theology, but there was a problem. That problem was that Geneva was French-speaking, but Bern and Zurich were German-speaking. So Bern didn't have any French-speaking pastors to send, but enter Pharrell, William Pharrell, who's a French exile. So he ends up being the leading voice 
for reform in Geneva, but it's really hard work. It's hard to change a church, much less an entire city, if that city is not really wanting to change. And at this point in time, Geneva didn't really want to change. Again, it was more of a poli- uh, political uh, uh, union than it was a theological union. It was a political and theological mess uh, at the time. So that's the context. So Pharrell knows that he needs help. Now suddenly, this hotshot author of the Institutes is in his city. So Pharrell goes to Calvin. He asks him to stay and help. And Calvin says, no, absolutely not. Uh, he's a scholar. He's not a pastor. He wanted a place of peace and quiet to study and to write. He didn't want all of the pressures of political and social turmoil. Kind of reminds me of the time I tried to convince Tim to come to Parkway, which is an actual true story. He didn't want to come here. In fact, he, would said, he said it would, quote, take a miracle for him to come. Well, that's kind of what Calvin said. But Farrell ha- Farrell had an ace up his sleeve. He said, uh, may God condemn your repose and the calm you seek for study if before such a great need you withdraw and refuse your assistance and help. In other words, he said basically, good luck in Strasbourg since you're now under a curse for not helping where there is need, which is kind of what I told Tim. (laughs) Calvin's response though, he said, I felt as if God from heaven had laid his mighty hand upon me to stop me in my course and I was so terror stricken that I did not continue my journey. That's not what Tim told me. So in 1536, Calvin begins work in Geneva. Two years later, he and, and uh, Pharrell will be kicked out of the city. Why will they be kicked out of the city? Well, when he first gets there, he began to try to reform the church and the city. By the way, to really understand the story of Calvin in Geneva, to really understand some of the things that are happening in the Reformation, you need to remember that separation of church and state didn't really exist at this point in history not only in Geneva, but in the world, right? We don't really get that until after the Enlightenment. So when Calvin seeks to reform the church in Geneva, he has to also reform the city of Geneva because those are interrelated, those are uh, overlapping. So he wants to make these changes and he comes up with a list of reforms. If any of you have ever taken a new job and tried to make some changes, you'll probably understand. some of the difficulties that attend that. So, well, Calvin wanted to make some changes as well. Some of the changes he wanted to make included prohibiting commerce on Sunday, promoting fair business practices, establishing compulsory education, reforming the city's governmental structure, creating a system of charity for the poor, reforming, uh, reforming church discipline. In other words, he kind of bit off a bit more than he could chew. And excommunication or the process of church discipline was really the big issue at the time. Calvin and Pharrell, they said, if you really want to reform the church, then you have to actually be the church. And that means, among other things, it means that you have to remove those who are actually unrepentant, those who don't actually believe the gospel, those whose lives aren't transformed. So Calvin says, we got to start practicing uh, excommunication. We got to start practicing church discipline. The city council responds and says, you can't do that. Calvin says, watch me. The council says, well, get out. And uh, Calvin says, okay, bye. And that was that. So Calvin is kicked out of the city. So was Pharrell. They're excommunicated from the city, which I find to be somewhat ironic. The council says you can't kick people out of the church just because they don't agree with you. So they kick Calvin out of the city for not agreeing with them. But anyway, Calvin ends up leaving Geneva and he goes to Strasbourg. He goes to the place that he wanted to go all along. It's now 1538 at this time. Calvin's in Strasbourg. Again, he wants to be a scholar, 
But again, he's convinced to serve as a pastor. And while he's there, he prepares the second edition of the Institutes. At this point, he's about 30 years old. His buddies are trying to find him a wife. Calvin's pretty content being single. Most of the reformers thought it's better for you to be married, if for no other reason, than to kind of stick it to the the Catholics. Uh, They forbid marriage for their priests. So uh, Martin Bucer and uh, and William Frail, they tried to set Calvin up, but none of the people that they found for him were good fits. So they said, what are you looking for? Calvin says, I'm pretty content. I'm not looking for anything. But if I do get married, here's what you need to know. I am not one of those insane kind of lovers who once smitten by the first glance of a fine figure cherishes even the faults of his lover. The only beauty that seduces me is, one, uh, is of one who is chaste, not too fastidious, modest, thrifty, patient, and hopefully she will be attentive to my health. I think Hallmark should make that card, right? <laughs> Calvin doesn't seem to be the most romantic person in the world at this point, but then he meets Idolette de Bure. She's, she's a young widow with a couple of kids, and Calvin actually falls in love with her. He doesn't just marry her just to um, uh, stick it to the Catholics or something. He actually falls in love with her. They get married in 1540, but as tends to happen at this point in time, their honeymoon is cut short by plague. She and uh, Calvin will have one son named Jacques and possibly a couple of daughters as well, but all of their kids die in infancy. When the Catholics say that uh, the loss of his children is a sign of judgment, Calvin responds that he's content with having countless spiritual children, but at the same time, he's not a robot. He's deeply affected by the loss of his children. Writing of the death of his son, Calvin says, the Lord has certainly inflicted a severe and bitter wound in the death of our baby son, but he is himself a father and knows best what is good for his children. So that's Calvin. And Idolette, they remain happily married until 1549 when she dies. He says this of her death in a letter to, uh, to one of his friends. He says, you know well how tender or rather soft my mind is. Had not a powerful self-control been given to me, I could not have borne up so long. And truly mine is no common source of grief. I have been bereaved of the best companion of my life, of one who, had it been so ordained, would have willingly shared not only my poverty but even my death. During her life, she was the faithful helper of my ministry. From her, I never experienced the slightest hindrance. She was never troublesome to me throughout the whole course of her illness, but was more anxious about her children than about herself. Calvin never remarried after the death of Idolette. I mention the responses to the death of his uh, wife and his son because one of the caricatures that you'll see about Calvin is that he was this kind of cold, robotic, just uh, systematic thinker, and that really isn't accurate, all right? He's certainly not as uh, personal, not as emotional as, uh, as Luther, uh, but he uh, could be uh, certainly at times. As we'll see, uh, Calvin's maturity, Calvin's level-headedness, the fact that he's not quite as impetuous as Luther will be a huge asset for him. But let's back up a couple of years before his wife's passing. We talked before, Calvin had been exiled from Geneva, and when he's exiled from Geneva, this Catholic cardinal named Sadaletto, he senses an opportunity for the Roman Catholic Church, right? So he writes to the city, and he asks them, he begs them to, uh, to return to the Catholic fold, and so the Genevan city council considers the letter, and they come to the conclusion they don't want to be Catholic, 
but they also come to the conclusion that they aren't prepared to mount a defense against such a prominent scholar as Sadaletto. So what do they do? Well, they write to Calvin and they ask for his help, which I think is pretty bold and audacious, right? You kick him out of the city and then you ask him for help when you need it. Now, if it would have been Luther, he would have probably written back a four-letter word, but Calvin doesn't do that. He's a bit less uh, crass. He actually agrees to help, and his response to Sadaletto is brilliant. In fact, even Luther likes it, which is high praise. Remember, Luther called Zwingli a, quote, wormy nut and a heretic. But of Calvin's letter to Sadaletto, Luther says, here is a writing which has hands and feet. I rejoice that God raises up such men. It's a really interesting thing. Luther really appreciates uh, Calvin, and, uh, and that's an interesting thing, and that actually is really going to help unify uh, aspects of the Reformation. So Calvin writes this letter uh, in response to Sadaletto, and it helps Geneva, and in gratitude, the council will invite him to return to the city. And so speaking of his invitation, Calvin will write, afterwards the Lord had pity on the city of Geneva and quieted the deadly conflicts there. I was compelled against my own will to take again my uh, former position. The safety of that church was far too important in my mind for me to refuse to meet even death for its sake. So three years after he left, 1541, Calvin returned to Geneva, this time with a wife, but without Pharrell, who was invited to return, but he decided against it. And one of my favorite little anecdotes for this, uh, this season about his return is Calvin's choice of text for his first week back in the pulpit after returning to the city. Think about that. You've been in exile for three years after getting wrongly kicked out of a church. And so what do you preach on your first week back? All right, if it were me, if you guys kick me out wrongly, right, and then invite me back three years later, I'm probably preaching vengeance is mine or something like that. But that's not what Calvin does. When he was exiled, he'd been preaching through the Psalms. When he comes back, he literally picked up right where he left off, the very next verse that he would have done. And Calvin would spend the next 23 years laboring in Geneva until his death on May 27, 1564. Now that uh, 23 years uh, weren't easy. They were really difficult for a number of reasons. The first is uh, rather obvious because he's a, a reformer. And at this point in time, to be a reformer is to oppose the, the uh, most powerful institution in the world, the, the Roman Catholic Church. And so that's hard enough, but there's two other reasons that are a bit more specific to Calvin's situation uh, as to why this wasn't a, a very uh, easy uh, ministry for him. The first is the fact that uh, Calvin had a, a rather sickly constitution. He was always uh, ill. Part of that was his own fault. He didn't really uh, rest. He woke up about 4 a.m. every morning. He preached and teached multiple times a week. He wrote multiple books. He served the poor, etc. So that certainly contributed to his ill health. But it was also just kind of a product of his time. I think we, we forget sometimes that we have it really easy compared to most of church history, all right? Uh, I read a, 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 an anecdote uh, recently about Calvin Coolidge's son. Less than 100 years ago, Calvin Coolidge Jr., Calvin Coolidge was a president for those who don't know, uh, his son goes out to play tennis. He's 16 years old. He goes out to play tennis on the White House lawn. He doesn't wear socks. He gets a blister. That develops sepsis, and he dies within a week, all right? That's less than 100 years ago, all right? Think about 500 years ago. If anyone ever asks you, when would you want to be alive, the answer is now. 
Or as Carl Truman said, the answer is really 50 years from now because there'll be even more advancements or something like that. We have indoor plumbing, we have toilets, we have antibiotics, we have filtered water, all those kinds of things. That feeling that you have, sometimes when you wake up and you aren't sure if you should go to work or not, you're kind of sick, but kind of not sick. That's right. You know what I'm talking about? That would have been an average day for someone in the 16th century. Calvin regularly experienced migraines, gout, hemorrhoids, kidney stones, fever, shivering, all of those things without antibiotics, without sedatives, without pain relievers, except for wine, and he drank a lot of wine. So he basically just kind of worked himself to death. In fact, his last days found him unable to walk to church to preach, so they carried him in a chair. Speaking of chairs, I put a picture of me next to Calvin's chair. I touched it, so um, some of his glory rubbed off on me or something. That was one of the reasons that uh, the 23 years that he spent in Geneva weren't terribly comfortable because he was constantly sick. Another reason was because he faced constant opposition from the citizens of Geneva. So they've already kicked him out, they've already welcomed him back, but that doesn't mean that everybody is happy that he's back. A previous pastor here at uh, Parkway tells the story about sometimes he, was, he would be preaching and uh, there would be people who would stand up and turn around and turn their chairs the other way and face the back of the room in protest to him. And I hear that today and I think that's absolutely crazy, right? I can't imagine that. I've not experienced anything like that. Well, that's tame compared to what Calvin experienced from his own people. He got death threats. He was often kept up all night because people would fire their guns outside his, uh, his uh, house at all hours of the night. Uh, while he was studying, people would throw rocks through his, uh, through his window. While he was preaching, there would be this cacophony of coughs throughout the room trying to interrupt him. Uh, there are even stories that it was really popular for Genevans to name their dogs Calvin so that they could kick him. All right, so it's not a very welcoming environment. But the biggest opposition that he faces is from a group called the Libertines. Libertines, these group of people who boasted in their freedom to engage in unrepentant immorality, including adultery. At this point in time, there's a law on the books in Geneva that a man could have at most one mistress, right? Which I guess is better than two or three, but still the proper answer is zero. And uh, so there, you have this group called the Libertines. So in 1553, Calvin wanted to do what's called fencing the table. He wanted to withhold communion from the libertines. They were absolutely unrepentant in their sin. So he wants to fence the table. He wants to withhold communion from them. And then leading up to that, there's this very intense uh, dispute that goes on. There's this long lead up because they would only take communion about four times a year in Geneva, which doesn't sound like a lot to us because we do it every week, but uh, that was actually four times as often as your average uh, medieval Christian. They would typically do it once a year. So there are weeks of waiting to see if Calvin is actually going to follow through on his promise to withhold the elements. And so the day finally comes. Calvin delivers a sermon. He steps up to the table afterwards. And as he prepares to offer communion to the church, a group of libertines rise from their seats and they draw their swords. They literally do this, in effect saying, if you withhold these elements, you do so at the risk of your own life. So Calvin basically hugs the table and he covers the elements and he cries out, these hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours, you may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned 
and dishonor the table of my God. And in response, there is this calm silence through the crowd. And one by one, the libertines all disperse, having taken no meal. So Calvin is no coward. He faces this constant opposition. Now, we'll talk in a, in a bit about some of his other accomplishments shortly, but first, let's talk a bit about the theological convictions that have been tethered to his name. Let's talk about Calvinism. Depending on your upbringing, your theological tradition, you probably have one of three responses to the name of Calvin. Number one, maybe he's a hero. You've got a Calvin bobblehead. You've got a Calvin coffee mug. You've got a shirt that says, I'm a Calvinist. This shirt chose me. All right. Or on the other hand, maybe he's a villain. You've been told that Calvinism is the death of missions. It's the death of passion for the gospel. You've been told all of these sorts of things. Or maybe you just have no opinion whatsoever, but most of us are probably in either the love him or the hate him category. And that feeling is typically owing to what is called Calvinism. So let's talk about that. I want to give you five points about the five points of Calvinism. We've done in-depth teaching on the theology of Calvinism before. These are more within the context of knowing about Calvin. So number one, First thing you should know, Calvin both was and wasn't a Calvinist, depending on what you mean by that. Let's start with the wasn't. What we think of Calvinism today was really articulated a couple of decades after his death. All right, we'll talk about that uh, shortly. So if you, if, if you asked Calvin, are you a Calvinist, he would have no clue what you're talking about. The same way if you were to ask Luther about the five solas, he wouldn't know what you're talking about because that is something that we've come up with uh, later. So in that sense, Calvin is not a Calvinist, but he is a Calvinist in the sense of Calvinism is a faithful representation of his uh, theological convictions. I think he would agree with each of the points of Calvinism. So speaking of the points, when we talk about Calvin, uh, when we talk about Calvinism, Calvinism doesn't refer to the entire theology of John Calvin. There are lots of things that John Calvin believed, lots of things that he taught that many Calvinists, that I would say even most Calvinists, today don't agree with. So Calvinism doesn't mean that you agree with all of his theological convictions, but instead it refers to five particular theological distinctives. We typically call these the five points of Calvinism. I'll give a brief overview. Again, if you're not familiar with these topics, come and chat with us or go and check out some of our theological equippings on each of these uh, topics. So those five points would be later summarized by the acronym TULIP, which is nice given that tulips are the official flower of Holland, which is where this discussion is taking place after Calvin's death. But that acronym TULIP doesn't actually come up until the 20th century uh, or the late 19th, maybe scholars are uh, not certain exactly. But the five points of Calvinism using that uh, TULIP tulip, uh, acrostic are total depravity, the idea that man is totally depraved, that every bit of man is, uh, is affected by sin, your mind, your soul, your will, your affections, your emotions, all of those things, such that man is spiritually dead. Not just uh, paralyzed, not just sick, whatever it might be, but actually spiritually dead. That's the T. The U is unconditional election, that God doesn't elect you because of any condition in you, including your faith. According to Calvinism, faith is the result of your election, not the cause of your election. The L is limited atonement. This is probably the most misunderstood. Everybody limits the atonement, no matter what you believe, Calvinism, Arminianism, whatever it might be, everybody limits the atonement to some extent. 
The, uh, the difference is either that you, uh, you uh, limit its uh, application in regards to its uh, horizontal dimensions, uh, you limit uh, who it goes out to, or you limit its vertical dimensions, you limit its depth, uh, depth, its, uh, its accomplishments. And so the idea of limited atonement is that Christ's atonement is intended to purchase absolutely everything necessary to save the elect, including our regeneration and faith that Christ's death accomplishes what it's intended to accomplish. That's limited atonement. Irresistible grace is the next one. Again, not the greatest phrase. Calvinists absolutely say that people can and do resist God's will. Irresistible grace, though, is the idea that God can and does overcome any of our resistance in the elect. And then lastly, perseverance of the saints, that God preserves those whom he loves such that it is impossible to truly fall away from eternal life. Now, as mentioned, those aren't the original terms that are being discussed. That's just a simplified summary in the form of a, an acronym or an acrostic. Other acronyms, or, or, or probably acrostic is better, uh, include uh, roses, all right? You like tulips, you like roses. Radical depravity, overcoming grace, sovereign election, eternal life, and singular redemption. But my favorite isn't tulip or roses, it's bacon, right? Bad people already elected, completely atoned for, overwhelmingly called, never falling away. That's my favorite because I don't really care about tulips, but I love bacon. Those are the five points of Calvinism. What's interesting historically is that Calvinists didn't sit down and they didn't come up with those five points as a summary of their beliefs. If you were to er ask early Calvinists, if you were to ask er early Reformed persons, uh, what are their beliefs? They wouldn't have given you these five distinct points because of number three. Calvinists didn't come up with the five points of Calvinism. So how do we get these five points? How do we get Calvinism as we know it today? Well, due to the influence of the Institutes, again, this is one of the most influential books in world history and certainly one of the most uh, influential books in, throughout the Reformation. So Calvin's impact was spreading across Europe. And then he starts a college in Geneva and students are flocking from all across Europe to study there. And one such student is a guy named Jacob Arminius. So in 1582, which is less than two decades, or, or sorry, less than 20 years after Calvin's death, Arminius travels to Geneva to study under Theodore Beza, who is Calvin's successor. After studying in Geneva for a while, Arminius moves back to Amsterdam where he was from and while there, he begins to question the doctrine of election that was held by the reformers. Not just Calvin, but Luther and uh, Bollinger and Beza and, uh, and so forth. And so Arminius begins to question, in particular, the doctrine of predestination. Not the question of whether or not God predestines, that much is absolutely obvious. The words predestined, the words elect are all over the Bible. Paul, Peter, even Jesus uses this language. You can't avoid that language. Everyone who believes in the Bible believes in predestination, all right? The question isn't uh, do you believe in election or do you believe in predestination, but what do you believe about these things? And so the question that really divides Arminius from the reformers is not whether God predestines, but on what basis does God predestine? Does he predestine on the basis of his will God's will or man's will. Both Arminians and Calvinists agree that God chooses man and man chooses God, but the question is which is ultimate? Which is the cause and which is the effect? Does God choose us and therefore we're brought to faith? That's Calvinism. Or does God simply foresee 
those who will choose him and therefore predestined them, Arminianism. And so this is all happening in Amsterdam with a guy named Arminius. But then Arminius dies in 1609. And so the next year, uh, his followers issue a remonstrance, which is a, a word that means protest. And that remonstrance came, uh, contains five articles for debate, right? Conveniently, five. We've already talked about the five points of Calvinism. They consider themselves generally reformed, but they just re- uh, disagreed with Reformation theology on these five particular doctrines. By the way, those who disagree on those five points are called Arminians, all right? They're not Armenians. That's an ethnic group. It's also not Arminianist, which is just a made-up word by people who don't know the real word. All right, so the Arminians, they issue a remonstrance uh, with these five points of contention. In response, a synod, a council was called in Dort, Holland, and the outcome of that synod was the, uh, was called the Canons of Dort. And the reformers rejected all five points of the remonstrance, which is where we get what are called the five points of Calvinism. And that leads to the next thing to know about Calvinism, which is that Calvinism is probably not the best name for these five points. Sometimes Calvinism is also called the doctrines of grace. I think that's better because whether you intend to or not, if you deny these five points, you necessarily distort and dilute God's grace. It's also called reformed theology. Why is it called that? Because the essence of Calvinism was affirmed by all the reformers. It's so strange to me that, uh, that a lot of evangelicals today are really afraid of Calvinism. They think it's some novel heresy. Why is that so strange? Because in general, all of the reformers agreed with it. Luther, Calvin, Beza, etc. As did guys like John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, B.B. Warfield, modern guys like J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, John Piper. That's kind of a who's who of theologians, right? Maybe not the best basketball pickup team, right? But I think they kind of whip the floor in any sort of theological debate. And it's not just a matter of theological debate. One of the arguments against Calvinism is that it kills missions. And yet, if you actually study the history of Christian missions, a vast majority of the most well-known missionaries subscribe to Reformed theology, including William Carey, David Brainerd, David Livingstone, Adoniram Judson. So don't caricature Calvinism as being some sort of strange offshoot, right? Calvinism is the reformed tradition. It's actually Arminianism that's actually the novelty. That doesn't mean Arminianism is a heresy. I think it's a false teaching. I think it's an error, but not a condemnable heresy. I absolutely think you can be Christian and Arminian. I just think that uh, you're viewing the gospel through a slightly skewed uh, filter and that your joy, your affections thereby can't rise to the heights that they could otherwise. We've said it before, your theology is the ceiling of your doxology, right? Calvin actually says this, this great subject, speaking of predestination, is not, as many imagine, a mere thorny and noisy disputation, nor a speculation which wearies the minds of men without any profit, but a solid discussion eminently adapted to the service of the godly because it builds us up in sound faith, trains us to humility, and lifts us up into admiration of the unbounded goodness of God toward us while it elevates to praise this goodness in our, uh, in our highest strains. So that said, I don't care, at the end of the day, I don't care if you call yourself a Calvinist, I care that you're a Biblicist, right? I just happen to think that on this topic, Calvin 
and the rest of the reformers were much more biblical than Arminius and his followers. I have no problem with saying I'm a Calvinist, assuming you understand what that actually means. So one more thing, kind of related uh, to the, the, the previous why Calvinism isn't the best maybe named for this, and that is that the five points aren't the best summary for Calvin's emphases and theological passions. If you read the Institutes, what stands out to you the most isn't the talk about predestination and election. So it's, it's kind of unfortunate that Reformed theology has been called Calvinism uh, for a, a number of reasons, but one of them is, uh, is the fact that uh, this wasn't his favorite things to talk about. You meet some Calvinists and all they want to talk about is unconditional election or limited atonement or something like that. It's kind of like CrossFit, right? How do you know if someone does CrossFit? They tell you, right? How do you know if someone's a Calvinist? Well, the first time they have any conversation with you, they want to talk about limited atonement, all right? That's not Calvin himself, all right? That's not what makes Calvin tick. Instead, I think if you were to ask Calvin, what are you most passionate about? He would have said two things. He would have said the glory of God and we just said the glory of God's word. That's what I think makes uh, Calvin tick. If you really want to understand what drives Calvin, you have to understand this. In most evangelicalism today, God seems kind of cute and cuddly, right? Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is my homeboy. God's my friend, and that's kind of it, right? There's no awe. There's no majesty. Whereas for Calvin, God was great he was glorious. I think, I think that, honestly, I think that's why so many of us today are afraid of Calvinism because it kind of di- displaces us from the center of our theology. I think most American theology is man-centered, and Calvin would call that idolatry. So it's humbling to read him. In fact, B.B. Warfield said, no man ever had a profounder sense of God than he. For Calvin, the need for the Reformation was fundamentally this that medieval Roman Catholic theology had defiled the glory of God and the gospel. Everything else was about that. So whenever uh, Calvin writes about justification by faith, when he's writing to Sadaletto, the Catholic cardinal, and he writes about justification by faith, this is what he says. You touch upon justification by faith, the first and keenest subject of controversy between us, wherever the knowledge of it is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished. Did you notice that? Why was he passionate about justification by faith? Not as an end to itself, but rather as a window through which we see the glory of Christ, all right? For Calvin, when justification by faith is obscured, the problem with that is that the glory of God is obscured. So summarizing his chief concern, Calvin writes, the thing, O God, at which I chiefly aimed and for which I most diligently labored was that the glory of thy goodness and justice might shine forth conspicuous, that the virtue and blessings of thy Christ might be fully displayed. So I think that's his chief theological passion, the glory of God. And I think his second is this, the glory of God's word, because I think those are intricately related. Remember, the Reformation is first and foremost a fight over authority. Sola Scriptura, that's really the, the, the primary issue that's going on in the Reformation. Yes, it's about justification by faith. It's about the doctrines of grace, but it's ultimately about authority. Does authority reside in the Pope, like most of the Roman Catholics would say? Does it reside in the church councils, as other church, uh, Roman Catholics would say? Or does it reside in Scripture, like the Protestants would say? 
That's the fuel for the Reformation. And Calvin realized that unless you see the glory of God's word, you'll never see the glory of God, all right? You'll never see, unless you get the glory of God's word, you'll never get justification by faith or any of the other implications. Let me just read a few quotes by Calvin on the word. Our faith should not be based on what we think, but on what God has promised us. Like Paul said, faith comes from hearing, not by listening to all the talk that men are producing, but by hearing from the word of God alone. And then let the pastors boldly dare all things by the word of God. Let them constrain all the power, glory, and excellence of the world to give place to and to obey the divine majesty of this word. Let them enjoin everyone by it from the highest to the lowest. Let them edify the body of Christ. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pasture the sheep, kill the wolves, instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose thunder and lightning if necessary, but let them do all according to the word of God. And then lastly, we owe to the scripture the same reverence which we owe to God because, because it has proceeded from him alone and has nothing of man mixed with it. So this is what drove Calvin, the glory of God and the word of God. So as we begin to kind of wrap up, I want to mention a few more things about Calvin. Some of them are negative, some positive. We'll start with the negative first, though I offer these with, again, the deepest admiration, humble recognition. I'm a theological pastoral dwarf lobbing stones at this giant. But a few critiques of Calvin. The first one is some of his theological convictions, I think, were uh, negative. That's, it's kind of ironic, given that what I most love about Calvin is his theology, but there are a few exceptions. For instance, he was a paedo-baptist, as were most of the reformers. Since I'm not, I think that's a, a negative. He was also one of the first. He's not the first, but he's one of the first to teach this tripartite division of the law uh, which is to divide the law into ceremonial, civil, and moral. Uh, I think that's an unbiblical, arbitrary distinction. I think it has some unfortunate consequences. We've talked about that before as we talked about covenantal theology and so forth. So I love Calvin. I love his theology, but I also think he got some things wrong. That's to be expected considering that a motto of the Reformation was simple reformanda, right? The church is ever reforming. We shouldn't expect any generation to get everything perfectly. So that's one critique of Calvin. A second critique of Calvin is at times, he tended to be uh, legalistic, right? Sometimes you read about Geneva and it looks like that city in Footloose. John Calvin's played by John Lithgow, all right? He didn't allow dancing, Footloose, all right? He didn't allow card playing. He didn't allow drinking in public. Though in uh, private, he loved to drink. In fact, his salary included 250 gallons of wine a year. If you don't know, that's a lot, all right? That's almost a gallon of wine a day. So there is this, uh, there's this tendency towards legalism in Calvin, but I think that's true of all of us. I think in every human heart, there's this tendency towards legalism uh, at some level. So we'll see that not only, the, not only in the reformers, but in the Puritans as well. So that's another critique. And then uh, a final critique is called the Servetus Affair. What is that? October 27th, 1553, a guy named Michael Servetus was burned for heresy in Geneva with Calvin's approval. We don't have time to go into all the details, but basically what you need to know is that Servetus was a heretic. He denied original sin. He denied the Trinity. He also taught pantheism, right? This mixture between God and creation, creator and creation. So he's a bad, uh, bad guy. Though he did a bit of good socially uh, because he was also a physician. In fact, he was the first European to correctly describe the function of pulmonary circulation. So he's a, a better physician than he was a theologian. So he was a heretic and heresy was a capital crime in Geneva. Remember, 
There's no separation of church and state, so this is true throughout Western Europe. Years earlier, Servetus had asked Calvin to meet him in France to uh, discuss some of Servetus' teachings, and Calvin had done so. The problem with that, remember, Calvin is a wanted man in France. France is not reformed at this period of time. And so Calvin goes to France, risks his own life in order to help Servetus, and Servetus never shows up. So I think Calvin held a bit of a grudge. And Servetus is a wanted man. He's accused of heresy, not only by Protestants, but also by Catholics, all right? Uh, Sometimes this story is presented like Calvin just killed someone who didn't agree with Calvinism. That's certainly not at all the case, all right? Everyone agreed Servetus is a heretic. Everyone agreed that Servetus should die because heresy is a capital offense. He's arrested for heresy, but he escapes. He makes it to Geneva where he's again arrested and he's tried and he's sentenced to be burned at the stake, though Calvin actually tries to convince the council to behead him because that's seen as a more humane uh, punishment. There's a lot more to be said. I think the big point that I want to make is that it's really arrogant, I think, for us to judge 16th century actions by our 21st century assumptions. This is generally seen as a stain on Calvin's reputation, so I list it here as a critique. We have more on this in a blog called Calvin Killed a Man. If you're interested, you can read about that. But when it comes to flaws in our heroes, we have a couple of options. First option is we can kind of just topple their statues entirely, all right? We see, see that in our culture today, all right? Calvin voted to execute a guy, so he's just canceled. That's one option you have. A second option is you just kind of deny the flaw or you make light of it or you close your eyes and act like it didn't happen or you even boast in it. I don't think either of those is correct. There's a great story about Zwingli makes this point. There's a story that's told uh, that when Zwingli was first called to the Grossmünster, the church in Zurich, he hesitated uh, because uh, it was rumored that he had been engaged in fornication. And so for hundreds of years, Protestant scholars have believed that that was a bit of Roman Catholic propaganda to ruin Zwingli's reputation, that it wasn't true until sometime in the early 20th century, a leading Reformation scholar was in a library in Zurich and he came across a letter actually in Zwingli's handwriting and it confessed actually to the sin of fornication. And so this scholar is shocked by what he's found. He's just found something that's upended uh, five uh, centuries of thinking on this subject, that it's just propaganda, that it's just an urban legend, and he realizes that it's actually true. And at the time, he's reading in the, candlelight, uh, in, the, uh, in the library by candlelight, so he's fearful of the damage that this might do. And so he takes the letter and he holds it up to a flame and it begins to burn. But after a couple of seconds, he realizes his error and he pulls it out and he extinguishes the flame and he gives the letter to the proper authorities because he knew that its very essence, the Reformation is about a search for truth that we're not gonna deny. So it's easy for me to kind of judge Calvin by my 21st century American assumptions, to therefore view this Servetus affair as a blemish, but I think that ultimately says more about me or us or our culture than it does about him in particular. Even if we want to critique him for it, we should recognize he's simply acting in, uh, in accord with the general assumptions and presuppositions of his day. And so those are a couple of negatives, if you will, But uh, there's also, for all of those critiques, Calvin did a world of good. So let me give you five of those really quickly. Number one, theology. There's a reason Reformed theology is associated with Calvinism and that he was kind of singularly gifted 
in articulating the implications of God's glory and salvation. He also, in addition to that, he kind of solved the problem of communion. You have the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation. You have Luther's view of consubstantiation. You have Zwingli's view of memorialism. And Calvin comes in and says, no, Christ is truly present in the elements. Christ is truly present when, when we partake. It's just not a physical presence, unlike what uh, Calvin, uh, unlike what Luther and the Roman Catholics said. But it's also not mere memorial view. He's spiritually present. He's not physically present, but he is spiritually uh, present. And so we actually talked about that uh, before in our talk about historical views on communion. Uh, another uh, one of his advancements was education. That was a major passion for Calvin. P- prior to this, most education was only for those who were aristocratic, those who were somewhat elite. But Calvin was really passionate that everyone be educated. So he starts this college in Geneva. Within five years, there were 1,500 students. It would become one of the most influential institutions in the Reformation. He was also instrumental in continuing the idea of the Protestant work ethic. We talked about that last week. In fact, he's sometimes known as the father of capitalism. Some of his ideas actually influence the development of capitalism. He was known as the savior of the Reformation. He kind of matched Luther's wit and intellect, but he had a much more conciliar approach, was more open to debate, so he was able to unify most of the non-Lutheran streams of the Reformation that would be really important when most of the other reformers, not just Luther, but most of the other guys like uh, Pharrell and so forth were rather impetuous. He was a bit more strategic, a bit more of a uh, long-term thinker, a a theological tactician with a a better uh, ability to nuance. And then lastly, is religious reform. And I think, again, this, this speaks against one of the caricatures of him. He wasn't just a theologian. He was passionate about missions and orphans and, and refugees. In fact, in fact, when plague descended on Geneva at one point, he volunteered to go and work in the hospital, which was almost certain death. But the council told him, you can't go. You're too important to the city and uh, to the Reformation movement. So the, I, I, the idea of, uh, of Calvin as being this cold, dispassionate theologian is completely uh, inaccurate. There's a lot more we could say, but we're out of time. So let's pray, and then we'll do maybe one question. So pick out the best one, best one, Jared. Father, thank you again for your grace and mercy to us. Thank you for the gift of men like uh, Luther and Calvin and, uh, and Edwards and Augustine and all these other guys that we're talking about. And in spite of their blemishes and flaws, we confess that uh, uh, we benefit from them. And so I'm grateful for the way that your uh, church moves forward uh, through the use of, uh, of these uh, broken vessels. And so we love you and pray for your grace in Christ's name. Amen.